Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last month, the Center for Disease Control issued a report called Suicide Mortality in the United States 1999 to 2017. The report made plenty of headlines with its finding that suicide rates are up 33% in the United States. The finding is particularly startling when juxtaposed to the global decrease in suicide over the same period. With me to talk about the trends is Jonathan Singer. He's an associate professor of social work at Loyola University and a board member of the American Association of Suicidology. He's the author of Suicide in Schools, a Practitioner's Guide to Multilevel Prevention, Assessment, Intervention, and Post-Intervention. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan Singer. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I wonder if we could talk about the global numbers um, first and then fit the United States in. Um, I'm looking at a chart of developed countries and their rates of suicide um, from 1990 until the present. And uh, all the countries, France, Germany, uh, the UK, Canada, Austria, Sweden, they're all going down. And about before the year 2000, the U.S. starts going up and and it stays up. It just keeps going up. What is um, when you see that chart and you've studied this? Uh, what do you think? Where was where, where? What's happening here? Well, you know, we always love to see that America's number one, but in this case, uh, it's a problem. And you know, there are a couple of things that have been pointed out as to why global rates have decreased and the rates in the United States have increased. You know, globally, when we think about the numbers, we think about we have to think about China. China has a has the largest population of any country in the world, and the suicide rate 20 years ago was enormous. Uh, it was 23, 24 per 100,000, and now it's down to seven or eight per 100,000. And so that means that China is contributing far fewer suicide deaths to that global rate. So when China's rate goes down globally, it goes down. Now there's some some really important reasons why it seems to be the case. I mean, you know, there's the, there was the one-child policy in China, um, and one of the effects that that had is that it, it made women more valued in China. And Chinese women were the – young women in particular were the ones who were most likely to kill themselves um, most, most of the time through use of pesticides. China's a very rural country. Um, pest, lethal pesticides were banned. Um, women are more valued – there's an increase in um, economic well-being in China. Um, China and other countries uh, have bans on firearms for citizens. You can't right. get guns. Um, and uh, there, there are a bunch of other reasons. But the, I, 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 I think it's important to note China's influence even in suicide rates. And the, it sounds like India's rate went down as well. They've got a whole lot of people, Russia, Japan, South Korea, all these countries, their their rates went down. Uh, you mentioned the guns issue. And um, if, we, if we were to factor that in and just kind of take out all the people who were committing suicide by guns in the United States, would we have a normal suicide rate? So there are two things. One is this idea of what a normal suicide rate is and there's you know there i think there there's a there's a pretty strong contingent of folks in the suicide prevention community that would argue that suicide it's possible that suicide could be a never event right that we could have a world or at least in the united states where suicide doesn't happen um 
But if we take out suicide by gun in the United States, then we we automatically save about 50% of the people who die by suicide. Um, since guns are not a factor in most countries outside of the United States, we have to look at, you know, globally, why were people, um, how were people killing themselves? And for example, in Great Britain, they saw that there was uh, suicide by acetaminophen, which, you know, is the, the, the drug in Tylenol. Wow. Um, and, and what they did was they, they banned acetaminophen in bottles, right? You know, you can go to one of these big box stores and buy 200 um, acetaminophen and, and open it up and pour them all out. Well, in uh, Great Britain, they said, no, we're only going to allow you to get them in the, these packs that you have to pop one out at a time. And acetaminophen suicides... Uh, decreased significantly, and the overall suicide rate decreased significantly as a result of that. So the idea is that if you take away the way that people could do that in an instant, they can be talked into not committing this act, and and we would have zero suicides. Uh, That's that's one of the ideas. It's... it's, uh, I wish it were as simple as that, but that's the basic idea, that that reducing access to lethal means is one of the most important things that we can do to reduce suicide deaths. Um, what, we've, what we've learned is that people do not typically substitute means. So if, if, if they want to die by one mean, a gun or a bridge or something like that, and you remove access to that, they are significantly less likely to use another lethal mean. I'm talking with Jonathan Jonathan Singer from Loyola University, and we're talking about the Center for Disease Control report that was issued that said uh, suicides are up 33% in the United States, and we're chatting a bit about why suicide rates are up here, down everywhere else in the world. And coming up in a few minutes, we'll have uh, film contributor Milo Stelik. He'll be talking about a couple new films, The Favorite and Roma. Uh, I wanted to also break it down according to um, kind of urban-rural, and um, it looks like there's some interesting things going on there with more rural kinds of suicides going on. Yeah, suicide is more common in rural areas, and if you look nationally um, in the United States, you can see that the mountain regions of the United States uh, have the highest suicide rates. And there are a couple of reasons why this seems to be the case. Um, for one, there is um, greater concentration of firearms uh, per capita in rural areas. And as we just mentioned, um, firearms are the single biggest contributor to suicide deaths uh, in the United States. Um, but there's also something that's been you know, written about a lot recently, which is this relationship between um, economics and, and suicide rates. And it's not a strong correlation, uh, and, it's, and it's, not, it's, it's a little confusing, but, but some of the ideas are that um, when you have a relatively prosperous nation, such as the United States, and there's a group of people who do not see their fortunes rising with the general public, um, then there is a relative sense of despair. And uh, particularly in areas in rural areas where you might have had manufacturing or you might have had um, 
other sort of uh, employment and those jobs have left, what you're left with is not only a sense of kind of existential despair, but you're also looking at the loss of community. And we know that um, social isolation and um, social disconnection, uh, the breakdown of community, is correlated with an increase in suicide risk. I also wanted to mention how it breaks down in young people, and I believe there was a study uh, by the Lurie Hospital that said that um, in just the Chicago area, it was like the second and third leading cause of death in young people in the Chicago area, and um, it's, it's and interestingly, it's not always guns; it's more often uh, asphyxiation, hanging, and things that uh, were were uh, used there. Well, how, how do you uh, we? How do you rank this up? I mean, it's kind of um, almost like a care issue, I think, with young people. I, I think I don't know. That's my guess at it. You know, I, I think it's really interesting that you use the word care because I do think that that, um, if, if we zoom out, uh, that actually has a lot to do with it. Not not necessarily day to day care. Um, well, well, first, let me just say that nationally, suicide rates for youth. Um, suicide is the second leading cause of death for people aged 10 to 34, and that um, the suicide rate increased between 2007 and 2015, which reversed um, a, uh, basically a 17-year trend of decreasing adolescent suicide rate from 1990 to 2007. So the suicide rate among adolescents has not always been high, um, but it has increased. And we don't know why people die by suicide, but we do know that, um, getting back to your idea of care, that um, adverse childhood experiences, so abuse, neglect, um, trauma is uh, correlated with increased suicide risk. And so there is this idea of being able to care for our youngest as a way of preventing later suicide risk. Well, it's a startling crisis for the United States. And thanks for joining us to talk about it. Jonathan Singer, Associate Professor of Social Work at Loyola University, board member of the American Association of Suicidology. We've been talking about the Center for Disease Control report that said that had, uh, that uh, said suicides are up 33% in the United States. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk with film contributor Milo Stelik. We'll talk about two new films that are out, Roma and The Favorite. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milos Stalik. Milos reviews the world of film for us. And today we're going to talk about two new movies, The Favorite and Roma. Hey, Milos, how are hey, you? Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. It uh, is the best week of the year. And why is that? Because two really amazing films are opening this week, which you need to see in theaters. 
And even though one of them was produced by Netflix, it would be criminal to see it any place else besides a movie screen. You are referring to Roma, the Alfonso Cuaron film that seems like the project of his his life, his pet project. Well, he, you know, I mean, he obviously had a big success with Itumama Tambien. That was his Mexican film. Then he came to Hollywood. He's been successful there. He directed a Harry Potter movie. He did Gravity, which was quite successful uh, recently. But this is going back to his personal roots of when he grew up in the early 1970s in a section of Mexico City, which is called Roma, with his mother as their father leaves, for another woman, of course, and his siblings— And the whole film in beautiful, extraordinary black and white shot by Cuaron himself is told through the eyes of their indigenous maid named Cleo, who is this amazing character. Uh, It's gotten great reviews. We talked about it around the festivals, and uh, everyone is anticipating this film. It's exciting. Um, This uh, main character, tell us more about her. Well, I mean, she, you know, she, she does... It's it's a film one of the uh, it's a film that works on many levels and one of the themes and levels of it is it's a film about class because she's a maid along with the cook they live together in a small apartment this family is not rich at all I mean they're very middle class uh, the the uh, husband who leaves is a doctor but he leaves them no money and she go, it's it is her personal story in a way of how she is a force, which Quaron talked about in his life, somebody who is essentially in his own life was a nanny, he, that, that was a real life uh, Cleo, who was in a way absent. He really didn't think about her. And now when he came back and tried to remember, and the film is a film about, of memory, of what she represented in a way she was part of the family. And the film, it's, it's one of these films in which has no violence, no real action, it just has human feelings, and it has a beautiful, extraordinarily tense ending, which you are going to leave the theater, and which is going to stay with you for a very, very long time. Now, you mentioned uh, the controversy with Netflix, and this film is showing right now in one theater, and I think the theater, uh, the idea is it's going to be there for a week, and then it's going to go to Netflix. Is that, That's exactly is that right. Oh, on? It's, it's on Netflix next week. Uh, you know, obviously, Netflix wants to still play it both ways. They want every all the eyeballs to only go to Netflix anyplace else. Alfonso Cuaron, like every film filmmaker, would like to have their film be on a movie screen. But at the same time, Netflix wants the recognition which theatrical exhibition can afford, i.e., they want an Oscar, which is why they gave $15 million, not a huge amount of money for this film, to Quaron to make this film and left him alone, which is a miracle in its own right. And, But at the same time, so they would like to get an Oscar. They want to qualify for the Oscar. It's, it's certainly going to get lots and lots of awards. But at the same time, they still want to drive the eyeballs towards their streaming platform. So the so once again, the movie theater is dead. The, right. But, and uh, now, Caron himself, I read a quote, and he said um, he uh, almost kind of, uh, go, he, he understands what Netflix is doing, that it's, you know, difficult to find a space for a Spanish language film in black and white to be shown in theaters. And it was not going to play there long anyway. Let's at least get it some notoriety on Netflix, seemed to be his uh, statement. He will get it seen by people. 
Well, I, I mean, I think that he's trying to be nice to Netflix in all honesty, you know, because he doesn't he wants to maintain a good relationship with them. And certainly you can blame him. The other side of it is a two and a half hour black and white movie that has that much power. That's so exceptional. That's a masterpiece. Really deserves better than to be watched on an iPad. Roma is at the Landmark Century Center Cinema, and that's it in the Chicago area this week. Rush, go see it. Don't leave the theater empty. Show them that you care. Oh, Milos, I went and saw Eternity's Great, the wonderful Julian Schnabel movie about Vincent van Gogh. I think there were six, ten people in the theater. It shows you the state of the world, which is not a happy place. Let's talk about another film, The Favorite. Uh, this is also coming to theaters this week, and it's made by a Greek filmmaker. Uh, Yorgos Lantimos, who's originally Greek, lives in London, has done uh, The Lobster, Killing of a Sacred Deer, two films which I really thought were the height of pretension and pretentiousness, uh, now turns backwards to the early 18th century with a film called The Favorite, which is based apparently on a real historical incident, um, a, a triangular relationship between three characters, Queen Anne, in an incredible performance by Olivia Colman, uh, Lady Sarah, the Duchess of Marlborough, who is played by Rachel Weisz and who is Queen Anne's lover and also uh, manipulates her, and an upstart, Abigail, um, played by Emma Stone, who was in herself a baroness, except that her father gambled away all the family money. So she comes there of nobility, but impoverished, and she schemes her way to the top. Now, the funny thing about this is the flavor and tone of this, a period piece with queens, uh, sounds like one thing. But this, uh, if anybody who's seen the trailer can tell that it is a kind of a a free-for-all with language and uh, themes that are more contemporary than, than a period piece. Yeah, it's done in a very modern way. I mean, the costumes are there. The costumes are beautiful. It's shot in a beautiful settings in some castle in, uh, in, in, in England. Uh, you know, it's not the first time that there has been an attempt to modernize uh, a historical theme. I mean, uh, 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 Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette springs to mind. The difference here is this very contemporary language. And it's kind of a it's, it's kind of a film that works by jarring you in pieces. A lot of active camera work. It's because it's a film that, which is very dark because they had no electric light, right? As everything's candlelight. Uh, shot in thirty-five millimeter. Another film that you should see on the screen. I saw it in, coincidentally on a DVD, and it looks horrible. So definitely go see see in a movie theater. But the performances, it's, it's, it's quite funny. And the character of Queen Anne, as portrayed by Olivia Colman, is quite complex because she's at once irascible. She is, of course, very sick. She has gout. She throws up. Uh, she's manipulative. And at times, she's extraordinarily lucid and wise. So it's my, And, of course, she's suffered a lot. She's had 17 children, right. which was true in life. Now she has 17 rabbits that she keeps as pets. And so there's like a strange animal theme. Right. Animals were very apparently very popular in early 18th century England. So they have one of the big entertainments is having duck races, you know, or, go throwing, rotten, or yeah. throwing rotten food <laughs> at, a na- at, a, at a naked guy. 
All right. So that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, that's The Favorite, and that's in theaters now, too. Film contributor Milo Stelik, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about The Favorite and Roma. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we find out how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is here. It's good to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Where are we going today, Nari? And today we are going to China and more particularly the online world of China and the YouTubers and the online celebrities of China. And uh, we, have a, we have a very unique film that's being presented tonight over at the Fastest Multimedia. And we have a special guest uh, over here with us, uh, Wow Hu, the filmmaker who takes us to that world. And Wow Hu is here. His documentary is People's Republic of Desire. It's great to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. I want to describe what is going on in the film. Uh, Internet hosting is a little different than uh, what we know in the United States, and but it is related to YouTube uh, stars and things like that. Uh, describe what's happening in China with this phenomenon. So in China, um, live streaming has become really, really popular in the past three years. Um, basically, what live streamers do is that they live stream their singing, some kind of telling jokes, doing a talk show online, live, at a fixed time every day. And uh, they attract millions of fans watching them. And then the different live streaming platforms they usually enable the fans to show their appreciation of these live streamers by buying them digital gifts like digital lollipops, digital diamond rings, and then the live streamers get to take a cut of the money spent on the gifts. And a lot of these live streamers are making a lot of money, like up to 200 or 300,000 US dollars a month, similar to what we have here with the YouTubers. Wow. Uh, and, and it also, there's a competition involved where the live streamers vie for audience against each other that's kind of like America's Got Talent or something. And um, it, it almost combines public radio membership drives in a certain way. <laughs> People throwing money at it, and uh, yeah. but it, it, it's um, the themes though end up being uh, income inequality, loneliness, uh, technology, and what it's doing to us. There's all sorts of uh, layers to what you watch unfold in your film. Yeah, I mean the the way I did uh, People's Republic Desire, I think on one hand, it's uh, using online this very popular online phenomenon to reflect what's truly happening in the Chinese society today. And at the same time, I think it's also I'm try I, I'm, I was trying to use this film to explore what's happening with our youth culture, especially our the relationship between young people everywhere and technology. How young people are increasingly depend. And depending on technology for connection, for recognition, and in the extreme case of China's live streaming, they, young people can use money 
to buy connection, to buy recognition online. And also, a lot of these young live streamers, they came from nothing, and this internet technology allowed them to really be able to become multimillionaire, achieve their, you know, what we call here the American dream, but in China, we call that the Chinese dream. Wow, this is uh, this is really amazing, and it was incredibly revelatory for me to get in, into that world. And I'm still trying to digest what what uh, what was there. But uh, uh, the important thing that comes to my mind is that you know you're getting these people to reveal their interior life to you at the same time as they have this pers- public persona as streamers, and then you have these entrepreneurs and these people, and some of them also are revealing what's going on inside them. Um, and some of them don't turn out to be very attractive individuals. You know, some of them turn out to be scammers. And I don't want to reveal too much of the film. How did you manage these people to reveal so much about themselves and to gain access to them in the first place and then get them to reveal so much about themselves? Yeah, I think in, for, you know, in, uh, first of all, in terms of access, because before I became a full-time filmmaker, I had worked for many years in China's tech industry, for example, wow. like working for Alibaba wow. and, and Yahoo China. So when I was interested in the, in the live streaming platform, uh, YY, which was the leading one back in right. 2014, so I asked some of my friends in the tech industry to make an intro. So I was introduced to the founder of YY, who then asked his marketing team to help me find the live streamers. Uh-huh. And the live streamer in the beginning, they didn't know what an independent documentary was. They thought I was making a, a corporate promotion of Video yeah, so they the thought pl- this would be an opportunity to promote. <laughs> That's yeah. right. But then after two months, they well, were like, "Why are you still showing up? Why are you still here? Is the film done yet?" <laughs> so, but I think I think it just you know, I get a nice introduction to a nice entry to meet them, but then to keep the to keep them. Uh, to keep them uh, continue to allow to me to have access and also to gain their trust is just a lot of time. I spend forty percent of my time traveling in China, all over China, because these people only meet online. Yeah, and in real life, right. they, they live in you know different cities. So I spend a lot of time w- with them, and I think the way I approach this film is that I really sympathize with them. I I, I wasn't being judgy, yeah. so I think that 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 made them very comfortable to share their lives with me. In addition to being having access to these uh, hosts, you also talk to the people who are giving them money, and some and some of them are give you know make four hundred dollars a month and should not be giving a lot of money to internet hosts, but are clearly so connected to them that they do. That's really one of the moving parts of the film is watching these people um, who who's often self-describe themselves as losers and things um, feel empowered by this. That's a, that's, a, that's a great word, empowered, because uh, for quote-unquote the losers um, population in China, a lot of times they're so lonely that usually young boys or young girls moving from the countryside into the big city looking for jobs. They, they don't know anybody. They don't have family. And they're so lonely after work. The only way they can f- get any type of connection is by going online. And in these live streaming showrooms, if they only spend a little bit of money, they will be acknowledged by the live streaming hosts, their idols. So in some way, they give them a sense of control in this online interaction, which is really different from uh, just consuming a TV show, you know, or simply watching some videos online. Yeah, actually one of them in one point of the guy, you know, he's so involved with one of these hosts personality wise and all, and he's become so dependent and 
he says that I hope I can go back to being a farm worker and have that simple life again. You know, none of this has really turned out the way that I thought it would. And uh, has China really reached that stage where you're starting to get this sort of a modern existential anguish with some people, where people are just kind of moving on beyond being farm workers? And, uh, you know, this, this sort of a thing is setting in where all the other modern societies have to deal with the emptiness of life. I, I think China is racing really, really fast in terms of not only just in economic development, but also in technology adoption and how uh, we as a society, a lot of times just rushing ahead without having time to reflect much on what's happening. So, uh, yeah, I mean, more and more people are starting to pause in China to ask, where are we going? But I think we're still waiting for that moment where the entire society, from the elites in the media to the people who are internet users, to really slow down and say, do we really want to spend all our time online? Do we really want to glue to our phones all the time? Like here, we're seeing that happening. But I think in China and many other developing countries, they're trying, still trying to reap the benefits from technological advancement. Well, it's pretty easy to look at what's happening with this hosting in China and say, well, that is very likely to happen to us. People are going to want that more personal connection and, and, and empowerment and find it on, in, our, in our system. Yeah, it is true. I think, I think um, the way I look at live streaming culture in China, I think it's just a more extreme form of uh, the Internet culture that's been evolving everywhere, powered by young people's participation on, on the internet, like for example, here YouTube, a lot of young people follow their idols, right? They they leave them comments, they go buy their merchandise. I think the the difference is that in live streaming in China, uh, you know, the business model is different. You 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 can buy them, you can di- directly tip your idol with digital gifts. So <laughs> so that make the interaction much more monetary, much more transactional yeah. as compared to what's happening with YouTube here. Hao's new documentary about the internet hosting in China is called People's Republic of Desire. You can see it at Facets. He'll be there tonight. And he's doing a screening and question and answer both at 6.30 and 9 p.m. And his interlocutor is interesting. Rachel DeWaskin is a novelist, teaches at the University of Chicago, and was in Chinese popular culture herself as a soap opera star. And she wrote the memoir Foreign Babes in Beijing about it. And that should be an interesting conversation this evening at Facets. And then it plays through December 13th at Facets. So it's great to meet you and uh, really fascinating to see your film People's Republic of Desire opened up a whole new world to me. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I hope you have a great weekend, and uh, Worldview will be with you again on Monday, and we look forward to seeing you. We'll be talking about Brexit on Monday. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.